maybe you have to brush with death before you can really reflect on life, on the people and times that really meant something to you, like childhood, dreams of sailing on silver seas and wooden shoes, visions of sugar plums dancing. Silver seas, sugar plums. The visions, the nightmares of a child are perhaps the most frightening and horrifying of any human animal can conjure. Some people who were in Chicago during the first stifling hot weeks of July would say that was so. If they were still alive. Michelle Kelly, age 25, was one of those people. A psychology graduate student and lab assistant, she was hurrying at 10.45 p.m. the night of July 3rd to get off her job early in order to catch the last plane to suburban New Jersey. Michelle was rushing because she was anxious to spend the long 4th of July weekend with her family. The family did gather, not for a barbecue, but for a funeral. Cause of death, chest cavity crushed. Official police statement, hit and run auto. That was the voice of reporter Carl Kolchak in the case known as the Spanish Moss Murders, originally aired on December 6, 1974. It was the ninth episode of the Night Stalker TV show, directed by Gordon Hessler, written by Al Friedman and David Chase, who was the story editor by this time from a story by Al Friedman. Along with me, talking about reporter Carl Kolchak and all of his exploits, is my good buddy, Chris Stashew. You know, I've heard I don't even need to be here. Don't believe everything you read on iTunes. All right, don't believe everything you read on the internet, folks. Uh, but yeah, I'm here, and I'm I'm excited to talk about this episode, I think. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, there's definitely a monster involved. It definitely is just Richard Keel in a ghillie suit. Well, it's so strange because we had such a good time last time talking about Bad Medicine, where we got to see Richard Keel and experience Richard Keel, and it was a really tight episode. This week, maybe not so much. I would say not maybe. This week, not at all. This episode has a lot of problems. Not, you know, the one that kind of outweighs all of them is the monster and just how abysmal the monster's design is in this episode. So you could actually see the monster. Well, sure. (laughs) I mean, see in quotations. I mean, the monster in this episode... It was just Richard Keel in, in, in an indeterminate costume that made him look like he was covered in something possibly green. I need to maybe adjust my television set or something, because when I watched this again yesterday, it's like just a black mass that I uh-huh. see. So much of this takes place in the dark that you just don't get a real clear shot of the monster, at least on my TV. And it was just, I saw his eye at one point and maybe that was about it. And I think I heard some Richard Keel groaning and, and roars going on, but that was about it. The monster in this episode is almost as bad as the werewolf in design. I think it's worse than the werewolf in some respects because at least the werewolf, even though it looked essentially like a stuntman with cotton balls glued on his face, you could still tell what it was supposed to be. Well, I like the concept of this episode quite a bit, that we are starting off at this sleep clinic and we see this woman who is working there and she goes out and promptly gets murdered and uh carl doesn't even see the body the first time it's not until the second one that he comes in the guy in the restaurant right who i thought like all of these folks would be 
related. Connected. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not. Yeah. Not at all. Not really. I can't tell where the restaurant guy fits into it at all. Plot convenience to bring Kolshak in? I don't know. It didn't make any sense. But I did like that this was a manifestation of a guy's dream or nightmare, and that it even lived on when that guy died. Because, like I said, we start in that sleep clinic, and the guy's not having restful sleep by any means of the imagination. And he uh, is carrying on and everything. Yeah, we figure out, as Kolchak figures it out, if we don't figure it out before, that his nightmares have manifested themselves. I like that as a concept. Is the execution there? I don't necessarily think so, but there are some interesting twists and turns that we have, but, you know, we've been talking about what we like about Kolchak. We like that interplay with Kolchak and some of the people at the office, and that is sorely lacking in this episode. The A story is 95% of this, and the B story of Carl back in the office is barely a blip on the radar. Which is a bummer, because like you said, that's normally the better stuff in the show. And in this episode, we get an underwhelming monster that at some point, and this is the biggest problem I had with this episode, and forgive me for nitpicking fans of Kolchak, but how the fuck did the monster get into their offices without them seeing it? With all of them there, because it's implied that the monster had been there recently. Because the desk is wet, and the desk doesn't just dry out after five, you know, after, you know, you know what I mean? The desk doesn't dry out unless it sits there for a while. So how did the monster get into their office? Unless it was disguised as a, you know, as a freestanding plant that just moved very slowly. I'm not really is sure. The, is that a thing? Well, I no. mean, with how poor the makeup is, that could have been the case. But I, when that scene played, I was like, are we being led to believe that this monster singled out Kolchak and snuck into the INS offices? Yeah, I suppose so. It's like, it's looking for me like, okay, how did no one see this giant moss man walking around? Because you kind of think that the moss man is gone towards the right. end of the, of the story when the guy who's streaming him dies. And then, yeah, that's the way to kind of tack on that last minute thrill and the way that he dispatches the monster, which where does he get that because the monster can only be killed with a stick from the bayou so basically a stake through the heart and I don't know where he gets that stick all of a sudden. He fu- he No, he pulls it off of something and he whittles it down. Do you not remember that? Well, I remember him whittling it down, but where does he pull it from? I mean, does he go to the greenhouse and get it? Plot convenience box? I don't know. I, I I mean, you're taking umbrage with that. The thing I take umbrage with at the, ep- the end of the episode is he doesn't stab the monster through the heart. He pokes it. He literally pokes it. And it's like, this is the same guy who in The Night Stalker, the original episode of the show, the, the made-for-TV movie, kills a monster, a vampire, through the heart with a, with a stake. And in this, he's just like poking it with a stick. This giant moss monster. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, at least put in some effort to show that your, your character is being threatened by this giant moss monster. As opposed to just like, poke it with a stick. I know you're not a big fan of the monster, and you're not a big fan of the way that we're handling the horror aspects of this story. I don't know about that. To be fair, I did like the end of the episode. I really liked 
all the characters that he meets along the way. I thought that this was one of the strongest in terms of the police captain. And I think by now, nine episodes in, we are realizing that one of the jokes is that there is never the same police captain twice. And having Keenan win as one of the police detectives is fantastic. And I love his his arc that he has through this one. He's less of the one dimension that we've seen up until this point, because most of them have just been, Kolchak, get out of here. Well, yeah, and I love how his whole thing of, you know, I went to group therapy and my wife said we were headed for divorce, so I went there and now I'm a much more calm person. And then when he comes back in the episode later on and he's just screaming like crazy, <laughs> that's, that's when we get the police captain we generally have or the uh, Vincenzo stand-in in this one, but yeah, I, I mean, Keenan Wynn, you can't go wrong with that guy. But what about Johnny Silver as Pepe LaRue, the disappearing man? I really liked him. And that whole, when he has the Brooklyn or Bronx accent after he kind of drops that whole, you know, Pepe LaRue thing and he becomes more Shapiro, I really enjoyed that. And how he just gets kidnapped and murdered by the monster, just because. And then we have Kolchak's favorite camera right there and taking a a picture that Tony is not very impressed by. One of the few moments that we get Tony in this episode. I think we get him, what, two times in this episode? Yeah. That was one of the bigger bummers of this episode, like you mentioned, was the lack of inner office interactions. Well, and what really stinks is that I read the the screenplay for this one, and it it was dated October 21st, 1974, so a month and a half before this one came out and they did a major rewrite between when this script was written and what we saw because the script is well first off it's 66 pages and we know that they've been now told you know after talking to John Huff recently we know that they've been told to write more pages than a standard length script because of the rat-a-tat dialogue that they're giving, you know, that kind of front page dialogue. But there is a whole story of what's happening back at the INS office. And it's this guy who comes in from the corporate office in New York and he's their efficiency expert. He is a former military man and Carl's supposed to pick him up from the airport. And when Carl gets that uh, notice over the radio about the chef being killed, he diverts and just goes right to the restaurant. And then there's this whole thing of uh, <laughs> Carl lies to the efficiency expert and talks about how he's basically got PTSD from all of the the war history that he has when he served in like the 98th Infantry. And Ron is trying to show him up and then like goes out and gets tries to find the records for the 98th infantry and then when that comes out that he's been doing that then the efficiency expert is all over ron like what are you doing you know why why don't you trust your own men and all this kind of stuff and makes ron look like an a-hole so we have this whole thing going on like carl is checking in he's either checking in via phone or he's coming back to the office and all of that as we know has been killed and then we get that weird thing in the episode that actually aired of tony giving a speech and then forcing them to listen to the speech that scene doesn't necessarily hold together for me i understand why they cut it because there's just not enough room in this episode no and i and i'm okay with that because of those other characters being so strong like i love severn darden uh he is such a great like mad scientist slash nerdy 
type guy. I mean, um, you know, a lot of people remember him. Well, I remember him mostly from uh, Saturday the 14th when he played Van Helsing. But some people remember him from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes or Real Genius. Uh, I want to say he was even in an episode of Columbo. Um, but yeah, he is great in that uh, scientist role where he, especially when he starts bad-mouthing the woman who was murdered and calls her a schlub. <laughs> and then I love that back and forth between him and Kolchak, especially when Kolchak is busting his balls and he doesn't even realize that he is. I do not think that anyone could have killed Kelly. She had no enemies, no jealous boyfriends that I know of. She was a schlub. A schlub? How do you spell that, Doctor? S-C-H-L-U-B or S-H-L-U-B? I can't be sure. Oh, she was eager, bright, but unbearably clumsy. No, I don't think that anyone killed her intentionally. Why, 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 why would you think that? Because if anyone could blunder out in front of a fast-moving automobile, it was her. She was always um, pulling the knobs off of expensive equipment, spilling bedpans. She even bumped into an oscilloscope and almost awakened the sleeping subject. And it almost ruined an entire study for her. She was such a schlub, Doctor. Why did you keep her on? I tried to be a nice guy. How's it working out, Doc? I don't know. It's nice to see these secondary characters actually being rather entertaining and, and effectively carrying the episode. Because they're given essentially the task of carrying the episode since we don't go back and have any interactions with Vincenzo and Jack Greenidge and Ruth McDivitt. So we don't get to see any of that for the most part. And Kolchak is always just kind of out and amongst these other new characters. And like you said, I think that that holds up pretty well for the most part. So it wasn't Severn Darden in the Columbo episode. I'm mixing him up with Theodore Bickle from the Bye Bye Sky High IQ Club episode. But they have that same kind of arrogance of uh, intellectualism to them. Uh, I think they both play that type of role great. But yeah, I, and I like that he actually comes back in that episode. Like, I thought he would be just a one and done. Like, the, the woman in the hothouse. I really liked her, and I liked that whole thing of, like, uh, I'm busy right now. I'm taking care of this plant, and then you, you can't come back later because we have the, uh, the 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 people from the Rotary Club or whatever are coming by. And then we even get the kicker on that scene of him talking about the plant that she's working on, and she says that it's actually her tomato plant because you know with inflation she can't basically afford tomatoes, so she's raising them there in her work hothouse, which I thought was a nice little touch, and also gives us a kind of a portrait of 1974. The tomato inflation. Yes. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't believe. I mean, people remember about the oil embargo, but those tomato prices, man, through the roof. No more bolognese for you. I hope nobody actually takes me seriously when I say that. <laughs> I, I'm kind of curious, you know, moving on from here into the next episode, The Energy Eater, if we're going to continue on this kind of streak of, you know, or if we're going to continue with bad monsters. Because I, I think I speak for both of us when I say most of the monsters up until this point have been more leaning on the Spanish moss murder monster quality than the ones from Bad Medicine. Yeah, I can't really say. I'm curious with the story 
called The Energy Eater, where we're going to go with that. It's been a long damn time since I've watched that episode. I mean, it's we're back to Alan Grassoff as a director with that one, but we're not back to L. Ford Neal and John Huff until Mr. Ring. So I'm curious how we're going to do these next two episodes. Gordon Hessler, I want to say Gordon Hessler is the director behind one of the best TV movies of all time, and that is Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. I'm pretty sure that that's him, because I know he also had, there was a Gordon Hessler Jr., who I think is the person I interviewed, but not his father, because his father has been uh, gone for a while. And I also want to say that Gordon Hessler directed the Raymond Burr segments of Godzilla when they cut Raymond Burr into the Japanese Godzilla. Not necessarily successful. <laughs> Not necessarily something to be proud of, but you know. But I mean, we're, I mean, we are one episode removed from being halfway through the original series and kind of looking back on this first half, it's a little disappointing that we've gotten Richard Keel back to back times. And one of the times was great. And the other time was absolutely atrocious. Yeah, I mean, I can sit here and make excuses and talk about the switch from Paul Playden to Syce Chermak and that, you know, they're still getting their footing. But you can't get your footing in something like this when we do have such a quick turnaround of, you know, just the, like I said, it was six weeks from that draft of the script I read to this actually coming out and airing. So things are moving at a breakneck pace. You have to be really solid if you're going to attempt to do this. And, and it wasn't. And that's the sad part. Because there are there are kind of there are little spots in this episode where you can see something that could have been great. But then it's just juxtaposed against these really awkward, kind of clunky other sections and it's pretty much anything involving the monster. Pretty much anything with the monster itself just feels clunky and kinda goofy. Because you can't I mean look, you, you want to talk about monsters that are clunky, we go talk about Star Trek. And yes, a lot of the monsters in Star Trek were super clunky and super goofy and don't hold up very well. But more than half of them hold up. And even when they don't land, at least they're putting in some effort. It didn't even feel like they put in any effort in this episode. I mean, it feels very similar outside of the fact that it's a a monster conjured up by dreams. It feels very similar to Bad Medicine. Well, I also like that it was American folklore rather than necessarily, you know, the classic monsters like the werewolf, like the vampire. I'm surprised we haven't had a mummy it's in this. It's coming. I bet it's coming. I'm sure. I bet it's coming. Well, I know the Headless Horseman is coming. The Headless Horseman is coming. There's like... um like killer monkeys, I believe, at some point. So that's the thing about this show up until this point that I have appreciated is that it has kind of spanned the gamut of monsters, right? I mean, we've had a UFO. We've had a vampire twice. We've had a, a ghost. We've had a werewolf. We've had a, a lot of kind of the usual suspects. And so I'm hoping that it goes a little farther down the rabbit hole in the in the next half, the second half of the show. The quality of the monster, to get back to that, the monster reminded me of something that we would have seen on Scooby-Doo. 
Like I was waiting for him to pull the mask off and it to be the guy who's trying to run down property values or get rid of all of the panhandlers, I guess would have been the better thing. And all of the street musicians. So that's why he's going around and killing, you know, Pepe and, and some of the other people around there. But not Randy Boone, Gene the Fiddler. No, Randy Boone. Well, Randy's got enough money that he can be in the recording studio. Maybe it was actually Randy who is out there in the Moss Man costume. I find it really funny that the Moss Monster is focusing on killing Cajun people. Because, like, there's no connection, but there happens to be... Kind of? Like, all these, like, Cajun street performers? Well, you know, there's a huge Cajun population in Chicago. Right, yeah. All those times I've been to Chicago and seen them people all down on the bayou in that crowd daddies. Like, okay. Uh, no? They just come right up the Mississippi. It's like a toilet backing up. But, you know, that's kind of the thing about these kinds of shows, be it Kolchak, be it X-Files, be it Supernatural. They live and die by the quality of their standalone monsters. Because, mind you, again, this show never had a, a storyline, a through line, a, mi- a mythos, mythology storyline, like X-Files, like Supernatural did. And we can go back and forth about how successful those mythologies are if they just stuck with Monsters of the Week. But... With a Monster of the Week-style episode, your show lives and dies by the monster. And, I mean, that's kind of been the case with this show, right? Yeah, we don't have Carl coming across a Hellmouth and saying, oh, this is why all these monsters are here, and then this is the guy who's opened it up, and now he's trying to take over, I don't know, what in Chicago or something. But yeah, we don't have any of that kind of stuff. We are week to week. So we could watch a lot of this stuff in any order, and it doesn't matter because we're not going to see Ron Updike grow as a character. We're not going to know when Ms. Emily's son dies and that her that affects her for the rest of the season. We're not going to know that Vincenzo has terminal cancer and then he's looking for a cure and only space aliens have it. None of that stuff is going to happen, so we don't care if we're watching this and then, you know, the uh, Mr. Ring episode and then the energy eater or what, because it just is a week to week show. Excuse me, sir. That cancer was given to her by the aliens. Well, that was her cancer. I'm talking about Vincenzo's oh, cancer. Yep. If you look behind Vincenzo's left ear in this episode, you can see the implants. Max, Max whatever style, whatever that yes. character's name is. God, you know what? And speaking of X-Files and Supernatural and how this show created those in a way and kind of spawned this style of show, obviously the more episodes you have, you would hope that the, the law of averages would make it 50-50 on good, bad episodes. You'd hope it's higher than that, but law of averages would say about half of the show is good. Especially a show like... X-Files where it had like 23 episode seasons and it was it's it's sitting at nine seasons whatever those last two seasons were don't get me started so I'm hoping when we're done with Shack, it'll be 50% are you disappointed that we started on this endeavor or are you crushed that we're kind of looking at these with a real critical eye and saying well maybe they're not as good as we remember no, because I think that there's a lot of nostalgia that plays into the love for this show. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I feel the same way about Colstrack that I do about the X-Files. Even the bad episodes of the X-Files are still charming because you get to see Mulder and Scully. And you get to see their interplay. And so, yeah, some of these episodes of Colstrack aren't great. But you still get to see Darren McGavin as Colstrack. And so, it's kind of worth it, even if it's not great. 
Yeah, I don't think anything is actually going to change my love for the show. It's just kind of nice to revisit these in a different frame of mind than, you know, seeing them as a 18, 19 year old. And that's the thing is, I mean, I watched it when I was, I mean, I remember my dad buying me this on DVD and being like, I really like this. You should watch it. And I was like, okay. And I liked it because when I was in high school, I was into the X-Files a lot. And that, that was like, X-Files and Supernatural were like my jam in high school. And so this fit really well into that. And so coming back to it a decade later, over a decade later, is with a, when it, with a more kind of critical eye, it is kind of nice in a way. But at the same time, you notice a lot of stuff that's not great. And stuff you just, you just can't overlook, unfortunately. Like the weakness of over half of the first 10 episodes, barring next week being, ama- or next episode being amazing, of the first 10 episodes just kind of being middle of the road to not great. But again, that's to be expected using the law of averages. Not every show can be True Detective season one. Not all time can be a flat circle. Not everyone can want to not work on that show because the guy who writes it is an asshole. Is that Brian Fuller? No, Nick Pizzolatto. Uh. I didn't really like the first season. I didn't like the way it ended, let's say that. Yeah, I don't think you're in the minority there. Next up, we'll talk about The Prisoner and how much we didn't like the ending of The Prisoner. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) Let's just say that the creators of Lost really took a lot from The Prisoner, including the nonsensical last episode. But the show is about a four-letter word, and that word is love. Great. So deep, much deep. But speaking of this show, this episode, just another, like, complete blue balls ending. Yeah. And then it got washed away. The end. And they'll never find the remnants of the Moss Monster. I hope every episode doesn't end this way, but I know they're going to. Well, even with this, the monster could just die and end up as a big pile of compost. No need for it to wash away. These episodes are great for what they are. Darren McGavin is fantastic as Kolchak, but they're kind of becoming a little formulaic. So, you know, and again, this is 70s, you know, mid-70s TV screenwriting, so... Shouldn't expect too much, to be perfectly honest. So, Chris, what's been going on over at the Culture Cast lately? Uh, in the month of April, we talked about Brian De Palma movies, and I think you were there for a couple of those. And we got to- I was. Yeah, we got to view some movies that I'd never seen before and kind of dig deeper into De Palma's body of work. So that was interesting. So that's what we're up to over at the Culture Cast. You can find us on Spreaker and all pod catchers. Also, we are on iHeartRadio and YouTube, if that's the way you listen to podcasts. We're on there as well. And you can follow me on Twitter at CultureStash, and you can follow our parent website, CultureShocked.com, on Twitter at CultureShocked. What have you been up to at the projection booth, Mike? Well, we just put out an episode about the Demolition Man. So that was a lot of fun. Got to talk to some folks involved in the production of that. And yeah, we've just, we're kind of moving along with some very random things like talking about Demolition Man on one hand and the man who shot Liberty Valance on the other and the Dark Crystal and Charlie Varick. So we are all over the map this month, but you know, it, it, uh, I can't say it pays the bills because it doesn't, but it's a lot of fun talking about these old movies. And somebody's going to plots when I call Demolition Man an old movie. But you know what? It's 25 years old now. So it can get a license, it can drink, it can vote, and, and to it can quote shoot. Wesley Snipes from that film, Ching Chong Chong Chinaman. So 
That's all I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. Slightly racist. Ever so slightly. Just makes me a little uncomfortable. Yes. It's Wesley Snipes, though. He got his comeuppance. He went to jail. So, yeah, you can find out more about the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Follow me over on Twitter at ProBoothCast. And, yeah, you can hear that podcast and this podcast, The Cold Jack Tapes, on iTunes and Stitcher and... Yeah, I might even find it on Spreaker every once in a while. But yeah, we're, we are around. You can definitely keep up with us. And you can follow us over at that that uh, once imploded... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Facebook group that is now gone, Facebook but group. has been started up once again. And people continue to ask the same question. What do people think of that 2005 Night Stalker? Who would you like to see as Kolchak? The questions it will never Thank end. you for adding me to the group. I used to watch this on TV when I was a kid. It is on MeTV. Did now. you watch MeTV last week? <laughs> it, you know, in all honesty, we're not making fun of you guys. It's just, you. if you're reticent enough to know, you know that what we're talking about is true. <laughs> so We are holding up a mirror to your Facebook group. Yeah, though, it's pretty funny. I posted the other day, somebody was talking about Devil's Platform, and it was talking about something that we had already discussed in the episode. So I posted the episode, and, you know, our episode numbers aren't the same as the Night Stalker episode numbers, because we've talked about the movies and the Norlis tapes and the 2005 show, so we're a little off. So I was getting a lot of flack about that when... You know, the Devil's Platform is episode, I don't know, 13, but it was actually episode 7 of the Night Stalker, so it was throwing a lot of people off. How dare you renumber Reading these episodes? is hard. I normally read the descriptions of my episodes before I watch them. Yeah. Try or to. Or listen to them. All right, I want to thank John Walker for the theme music that we play every week, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Keep those iTunes reviews coming in, and if you need to know how to spell Chris's last name, it's so easy. <laughs> S-T-A-C-H-I-W. Make sure that he gets mentioned every once in a while. Just call me the one so who knows nothing. Crying. Because honest, <laughs> I am the one who knows nothing. And make sure to check out our next episode where we talk about everyone's least favorite coal shacks show, The Night Stalker from 2005. The supportive evidence for my theory was washed away through the Chicago Sanitary Canal. But why call it a theory? It was really a fact. How could it possibly happen? Well, they say that the mystics of India, while in a trance, can grow back severed fingers and move boulders with the power of their minds. It's documented. Somehow, Paul Langlois, in his special dream state, did even more than that. He created a palpable horror. When I contacted the sleep lab, they told me Dr. Pollock had lost his taste for pure research. He'd shaved off his beard and gone back to Long Island to work in the family shoe business. What about Paul Langlois, the innocent test subject of that pure research? Well, he's just plain dead. (laughs) 